Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I'm joined by Saeed Husseini, socialist activist and contributor to Africa as a Country and Jacobin magazine, who recently completed a PhD at the University of Oxford and is now living and working in Lagos, Nigeria. We discuss the recent NSARS protests, the economic and health impact of COVID-19 in Nigeria, and the history and future of the Nigerian left. I met Saeed while we were both doing our Masters in African Studies at Oxford, so it's a real pleasure to have him on the show. As always, a shout out to our amazing patrons. Your support is critical for covering the costs of producing the podcast. Without your help, we wouldn't be able to continue bringing you these interviews with such amazing guests. If you've been considering becoming a patron for a while now but haven't gotten around to it, please do consider doing so now. Just hit pause and head over to patreon.com slash a world to win pod or click the link in the show notes. If you become a patron, you'll get access to exclusive content, including the full hour-long episode this week and full-length interviews with figures like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, as well as a chance to influence the future direction of the show. If you want to support the show in another way, please do give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. A big thank you to the Lipman Miliband Trust for awarding us the grant funding we've needed to bring you these first episodes. You can follow them on Twitter at Lipman Miliband. And another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track, Heavyweight Champion of the World, as our intro and outro music. Now here is Saeed Husseini. Hello, Saeed, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, Grace. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure because you've been a huge inspiration for a while. So it's nice to be on. <laughs> this is um, for for listeners' information. Saeed and I did a master's together in African studies. So this is a kind of reunion for us. I haven't seen him in, in a very long time. So it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Yeah, same here. Right. So we're going to talk about Nigerian history and politics today. And we're going to start off by discussing a couple of news stories about what is going on in Nigeria at the moment. And this one was from Africa as a country. It's entitled Study Notes on Nigeria's Youth Revolt. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll get into the kind of details of this story in a minute. But can you just first give us a bit of background on the NSARS protests against police violence in Nigeria? Yeah, I mean, they kicked off at the start of October when a video of a young guy in Delta State, in one of Nigeria's southern states, went viral. And it was a video of this guy basically being brutalized by this police unit. And... You know, after that was shared countless times on social media, a bunch of celebrities actually initially took to the streets and sort of encouraged their followers on social media to join them on the streets. And, you know, we saw this outpouring of young people, particularly in Lagos, but in other major cities around the country, taking to the streets, demanding that this police unit called the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, or SARS, be disbanded. And in fact, this unit is, has been notorious for a while. Um, it's been around since 1992, and it was established actually by a military dictator who was ruling at that point in time. And since then, I mean, it's been, it's had a very, very brutal record that has led to various instances of public protest and outrage. But this was definitely, or has definitely been the most sustained protest movement in response to the brutality of SARS. So this iteration, 
like I said, started at the beginning of October and um, was sustained for about three weeks and continued to grow and expand both in terms of the population of people who were pouring out onto the streets, but also in terms of its demands. So the initial slogan was NSARS, you know, a demand for this unit to be uh, ended. And the government came out about a week into the protest saying, well, okay, fine. I mean, we decided to disband SARS. But they also announced that they'd set up a unit that was basically identical to SARS, calling Mm -hmm. it really just a different name, uh, SWAT. And this is something we'd seen in the past where, you know, in moments of public outrage, the government would come out saying, okay, we'll, you know, offer some sort of moderate reform. But this time, unlike in previous occasions, the protests did not subside after, you know, the initial announcement of some moderate reforms and, in fact, continued to build until around the 20th of October when government in Lagos ordered a curfew and, you know, as a lot of people maybe now be aware, they were the government also ordered the military to go and suppress one of the key sites of the protest in, in uh, a couple of the key sites of the protest in Lagos. Uh, and we ended up having protesters actually shot by the security forces. At that point, mm-hmm. a lot of the street protests were squashed. And, you know, that's also been followed by increased surveillance and kind of people being hounded on social media and some of the activists having their movement restricted and kind of various forms of, of, of repression. So, the street protests have, have definitely ended and you know, a lot of the online protests have subsided, but there's still a lot of strong feeling about the issue. And it's, it's clear that you know, the government's knee-jerk response saying both in offering some moderate reforms and in quashing the protest has suggested that you know, they're not very trustworthy. And yeah, it's not oh. unlikely that we'll see a repeat performance, perhaps even at a larger scale, because uh, there's certainly a lot of popular anger towards how the movement has played out and been crushed. Yeah, I thought what was really interesting about this story was the way that the author describes the kind of development of the protests away from Mm -hmm. something that was just about police violence towards a much broader set of kind of discontent with the the current administration and I thought the end was very interesting because she says that the end of the protests is a reflection of the weakness of the Nigerian left Mm -hmm. I thought that was quite interesting as I wasn't kind of really aware of the ideological foundations to the extent that there were any or the class foundations of these protests can you maybe talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. why this yeah they have this conclusion yeah I mean so to kind of understand that, one has to think a bit about the background to to what's kicked off and the kind of context, the economic and political context in Nigeria at the moment. And I think, you know, where we started off the conversation, talking about kind of economic decline that's been a product of mm. COVID is, is a huge part of the story. So, I mean, people people's living standards have been sort of threatened quite substantially by the turn in the economy this year. And this was reflected in a call by some of our major labor unions for a general strike in September. So just a month before the protest initially kicked off. And I mean, it's a very disappointing story because ultimately the general strike was called off and the reasons around it are still kind of being debated. But it's clear that the sort of 
concessions that were being demanded from the government were not granted. And, you know, so I think a lot of people were disappointed by the fact that the strikes were called off. And so this partially, I think, fed into a sort of wider climate of, of disenchantment that, that preceded the protest. Um, so that's one aspect. And then another is the fact that some of the key figures that participated and helped mobilize, aside from the celebrities that I spoke about, were also, you know, various new social movements that have sprung up in the past couple mm. of years, including um, one called the Coalition for Revolution, which uh, is led by a figure called Omoyele Shore, who was a presidential candidate in uh, the 2019, our most recent election. And this group definitely has strong ties to a sort of wider intellectual left tradition in Nigeria and, you know, has been supported by some of the key figures of, you know, what's remaining of Nigeria's kind of left legacy. So the the left, you know, to the extent that we kind of have one still, um, definitely participated in this protest and even provided some form of leadership. But I think to some extent that wasn't reflected in the demands that were initially expressed. I mean, I think even though Coalition for Revolution and groups like them have been demanding for much wider transformations of Nigerian state economy and society, when the protest kicked off, you know, we saw that there were kind of other actors that were participating who were trying to restrict the extent of the demands that were on the table, you know, urging that protesters focus only on SARS rather than sort of dilute the message Mm. with wider considerations about inequality or, you know, various forms of insecurity. So that kind of tussle existed within the the protest itself and didn't end up reflecting, I think, the much wider disenchantment and critiques of the status quo that exists in society at the moment. So I think that's part of why the author concluded by saying both the direction of the protest in terms of what kinds of demands were articulated ultimately most forcefully and the way in which they ended um, reflect the nascence really or, or the weakness of, of the left. I think even though you know these left groups helped raise, helped mobilize the crowd that showed up initially, um, I think there was a lot sort of left to be desired in terms of the kind of leadership and also the kinds of let's say, education or, or consciousness raising that, that the left could have done. Uh, mm. And I think that's what uh, the author there was referring to. You sent over another article, which again was was also really fascinating in Jacobin, um, mm-hmm. how Nigeria's left helped shape the country's history. Mm-hmm. And it talks about Nigeria's Marxist tradition that stretches back to the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, you know, perhaps not something that leftists in the global north will be that familiar with. I know that, you know, for me, when I think about kind of socialist strands in sub-Saharan African politics, Nigeria isn't actually one that stands out that much. And I was just wondering kind of why that is. And also, if you could talk a bit more about the roots of of, of socialism in Nigerian Mm -hmm. politics. Yeah, it's a good point. I think, you know, that history is not very well known in the global north, as you say. But even in Nigeria, I think a lot of people are shocked to learn that, you know, the early anti-colonial nationalists in Nigeria were radical Marxists or, you know, had founded and been part of kind of pan-Africanist or sort of Mm. um, socialist organizations. And I think that's partially a reflection of the fact that 
ultimately they were beaten out by um, yeah. conservative movements here, by sort of military dictatorships. I mean, even earlier than that, they were, you know, hounded by the colonial state and actually weakened by the colonial state in, in many ways. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a history in many ways of decline and of maybe only a few moments of kind of promise. And I think aside from the colonial period, the sort of next period where you see Marxist or socialist traditions in Nigeria have a sort of flowering of, of, of hope is in the 80s, where we actually had a political party called the People's Redemption Party that emerged when democracy resumed briefly in the 80s and even took power in two states, in, in two of our sort of federal subnational states. But yeah, I, I, you're, I mean, this the, in part because that was a fairly short-lived period that was then ended again in military dictatorship. That story hasn't been told or kind of celebrated as much as it should be. Um, so it's very encouraging to see in the article in Jacobin that you're referencing by Adam Maya and his book also, Niger Marxist, spark up again a bit of an interest mm-hmm. in, in that history here. Um, and it should be interesting to see the extent to which that also develops in um, wider conversations about the legacy of the left in Africa. Right, now we're going to move on to the main part of the show where we're going to talk um, a bit more in depth about Nigerian politics and history. But also I want to ask you the question that I ask everyone uh, Mm. in this part of the show, which is kind of how did you get interested in politics and why Mm. did you become a socialist? Okay, yeah, I mean, I think I've got a bit of a windy path to how how that worked out, but... Don't we all? (laughs) Yeah, true. I guess, you know, if I want to think back, probably... My upbringing had had a role in this. You know, I was raised in kind of lower middle class and middle class family. Received scholarships through my life to go to go through education. So instinctively, I guess I had an understanding of inequality, right? Because you could mm-hmm. see people around you with living a sort of life that you could never imagine for yourself. Um, you know, so that's that probably was a part of it at a kind of instinctual level. But I think when I started to kind of gain more clear ideas about politics was during my undergrad, studying to be a sort of pre-law student in a small uh, university in America. And I encountered for the first time there sort of Marxist literature, actually Marx himself, you know, and uh, started to think, wow, this kind of makes a lot of sense and helps explain or helps me understand some of the inequalities that I witnessed and experienced you know, growing up and also just kind of gave me an understanding that the world as it was constituted was not as it could be and should be. So some of that was probably part of early realization that there's much more to politics than the kind of mainstream American political parties or Nigerian political parties were presenting at the time. But I think where I started to sort of more overtly embrace socialist politics was around the time of the emergence of Corbyn and Sanders movement mm. in, 20, in 2015, 2016, and 2017. And uh, at this point, I was in the UK doing my master's studies. And, uh, I mean, this sort of Corbyn energy was so in, so attractive and just the kind of critique of not only inequality in the UK, but questions of imperialism globally yeah. struck me as uh, amazing because 
you know, these are things that we had encountered, I had encountered in my own studies of African history, but and sort of world history, but hadn't really heard articulated by mainstream political figures in uh, sort of major capitalist countries in the West. So that was quite invigorating for me. And um, yeah, through that process and also through actually listening to a lot of sort of Jacobin podcasts and also the sort of dirt bag left, you know, <laughs> yeah. Chapo Trap House, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, falling into that sort of rabbit hole, I think has also been quite useful for me in coming to a kind of wider consciousness of socialist uh, politics and economics. Yeah, it's funny because I think our like our journeys were at least kind of um, over the last five or so years have been relatively similar on that right. front. Because when we were doing our masters together, it was just before that Corbyn moment, and Ooh. I remember the election and how how terrible it it, it yeah. was in the UK. Um, and then like kind of going down a similar route actually, and just so, like suddenly being excited about politics again. Yeah, yeah. No, that was. I mean, I think the wider impact of that moment we were, were just probably now beginning to understand, and yeah particularly in places very far removed from, you know, yeah. the, the actual kind of um, side of, of that struggle. So, you know, who knows, like, how far and wide those sorts of bursting onto the scene of people like Corbyn and, and Sanders uh, will, will, will echo. We have been speaking a bit about the kind of modern manifestations of, of imperialism. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, a lot of that was rooted in the the colonial experience um, and the relationships that were sustained in the kind of post-colonial era, what mm. Kwame Nkrumah famously called this, um, you know, neo-colonial age. Yeah. What was, I mean, this is such a broad question, and I mean, feel free to take it in any direction that you that you want to, mm -hmm. but what was the kind of the experience of the colonial era and the legacy of colonialism in mm -hmm. Nigeria? I think maybe the, the most familiar thing to people listening to this podcast might be the kind of civil war um, mm -hmm. and the, the kind of attempt of, of Biafra to secede. Mm -hmm. um, but what kind of, what were those, what was that conflict rooted in and how does that link back to the, the, the colonial period and, and neo-colonialism that took place afterwards? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is a big question, but. Um, it is. Thinking, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. I mean, I, yeah, I think you're right to sort of point to Biafra, but even maybe earlier than that and, you know, within the colonial period itself, one aspect of the colonial system and one enduring legacy, I think, was, you know, what I, what I was referring to earlier, the kind of weakening of radical alternatives to the status quo. So, I mean, in Nigeria, the, like I was saying, the early iterations of anti-colonial uh, nationalism were quite expansive in their aspirations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people like Adam Gattachu have hinted at, you know, how in a lot of Africa, actually, a lot of the early anti-colonial thinkers and statesmen were quite internationalist in their orientation and, and quite radical in their orientation. But in Nigeria, the colonial state, I think, nipped a lot of that in the bud with the sort of... And one particular example of this is this movement and group called the Zikist movement, which um, yeah. unfortunately is kind of written out of a lot of the mainstream history of Nigeria and a lot of Nigerians who not even really be familiar with the Zikis, but they were at one stage the sort of vanguard of anti-colonial struggle here in Nigeria after the 30s. And they, the, the Zikis movement um, was formed by a lot of kind of radical students, some returning ex-servicemen who had fought for the British in World War II and now were sort of in the 40s and 50s. 
Um, but these groups were kind of eventually banned and a lot of their leadership jailed. Um, and ultimately, when we had independence, the folks that took power were those who, in the case of Nigeria, were actually quite sort of friendly with the colonial state and yeah. had pushed for a moderate version of, of decolonization. Uh, so, you know, this contrasts, of course, with cases where you had liberation struggle or you had at least much more radical resistance to colonialism. So I think that background is one that's quite important to understand the kind of trajectory of Nigerian politics since then, where, you know, you've seen the domination of a lot of very conservative and even ethnically based movements um, demanding for power and that, you know, the state kind of serve the interest of these ethnic elites rather than, you know, the sort of broader cause of, of, of equality. So that's part of the background, I think, and, and, and the sort of legacy that the colonial state left. And it also partially helps us understand why, you know, we had secessionist struggle framed largely in ethnic terms or emerge in, in 1967, um, leading to the outbreak of civil war. And I mean, like all wars, there's a lot of debates about the actual sort of content of, of what was driving the struggle. And there was certainly actually a lot of even some Marxist thinkers who participated in and supported the, the African successionist struggle. So, you know, it incorporated like a variety of ideas about what Biafra was intended as. But it's true that a lot of the people who ended up leading it were the kind of conservative wing of both the military leadership and ethnic aristocrats. And on the Nigerian side, sort of Nigerian side as well, you know, we had a military dictatorship at, this, at, the, at the time and, um, you know, rather than recognizing what were in part sort of genuine aspirations for kind of increased independence, you know, amongst people's sort of a diversity of people groups that were just pulled together under this banner of Nigeria, the response of the state was to crush the secessionist movement extremely violently. And it's left quite a massive sort of historical scar that's not fully been reckoned with yet, I think, in Nigeria. So, I mean, yeah, these are, these are some of the quite deep legacies that I think are retained, both from colonial project of trying to pull up this diversity of groups together into one coherent nation state, but also, you know, from kind of clipping the wings of early alternative visions of, of, of what Nigeria could have been. So in the period after that, in the kind of 1970s and 80s mm-hmm. um, and 90s, actually, Nigeria obviously experienced this series of kind of authoritarian leaders, relatively unstable politics and attempts to impose a variety of kind of austerity policies on the country. And this mm-hmm. was all part tied into the volatility and commodities prices that was then taking place mm-hmm. in the global economy. And, you know, those austerity policies were Im- imposed, obviously, with the support of institutions like the IMF, mm-hmm. which had, you know, directly linked uh, as conditions for loans throughout sub-Saharan Africa, uh, these the imposition of kind of things like privatisation, the removal of subsidies, uh, capital account liberalisation. What do you think in Nigeria were the lasting impact of those policies, um, both kind of politically and economically? Politically, and I think this sort of ties into the wider trend I've been discussing, those changes did a lot to kind of narrow the horizon of what can be discussed or considered possible um, within the sphere of party politics. 
So even after that authoritarian imposition of austerity, after democracy was resumed, you know, a lot of the sort of boundaries of what you could imagine economically and the kinds of policies that the state could pursue um, still kind of reflect that moment uh, and still replicate the kind of austerity language of constantly needing to privatize or to slim down state or, you know, to sort of expand the market. So I think one of the key legacies there has been in what we imagine to be possible here in Nigeria in terms of what the state can do. And then the most direct one is the economic one, where that raft of privatization and of the retrenchment of large numbers of civil servants uh, has never been reversed. Um, So those impacts are still profoundly felt here, where public services have never been reinvested in. You know, we don't really have any real public services to speak of uh, that people can depend on, um, you know, irrespective of of, of who you are uh, uh, in the country. So, I mean, I'm partially struggling to account for this because the extent of those impacts are so quite deep and varied. And, yeah, even though we kind of regained democracy formally in, in 1999, I think the extent to which various social actors have been able to challenge that legacy has been quite limited. I think that point that you made about that those policies kind of narrowed the scope of what could be considered possible in Nigerian politics is mm. really, really interesting. Mm. Um, and it parallels really the impact that austerity has had in so many other countries around the world. Yeah. I actually just, uh, so in this um, coming edition of Catalyst, I've got a piece arguing exactly this, and it's kind of a review of Colin um, Lee's and Leo Panitch's book, Searching mm-hmm. for Socialism, mm-hmm. which looks at history of the battles between the right and left in the Labour Party mm-hmm. and I'm basically saying look this it basically shows that this battle was consistently fought on the grounds of what is and isn't possible mm-hmm. what will the markets allow what will public opinion allow mm-hmm. what will kind of global geopolitics allow mm-hmm. um so it is interesting to hear you say that yeah. uh, because yeah it just seems it seems so familiar it seems like this is just like a really central part of the neoliberal playbook no matter where we are in the world absolutely I think actually sort of the critical moment in the development of, of, in the sort of narrowing of that perspective here in Nigeria was during the dictatorship that imposed austerity in the 80s, the Babangida dictatorship. The dictator called for this public debate about whether or not Nigeria should either accept the IMF loan and the conditionalities that came with it or should pursue its own sort of homegrown austerity program rather than being a, a stooge to the to international mm-hmm. finance institutions. Ultimately, though, what that meant was that all the other kinds of perspectives about what Nigeria should do were excluded from that debate. So mm-hmm. you know, Nigeria ended up choosing the so-called homegrown program and eventually actually taking the loan. Um, but that kind of framing of the choices, I think, has remained uh, fairly constant here, you know, between the kind of local version of austerity or the one being imposed from without. Um, so, no, it's interesting to see that that's reflected in other parts of the world. Yeah. And today, I mean, Nigeria is, is a highly unequal country. Um, yeah. it's, it's one of the most unequal countries uh, in the world. And you've got very high levels of poverty combined with this comprador elite that has managed to become very rich, both mm-hmm. of kind of political power and the country's natural resources. We've talked a little bit about the kind of history of the left. I'm just wondering yeah. how the Nigerian left orients itself in the context of just those vast gaps that clearly exist between 
the vast majority of people mm-hmm. and a political elite that is able to to dominate the country's politics. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the that level of inequality has quite an impact on the left's ability to organize because yeah. you know, it means that a lot of sort of labor movements has been weakened by sort of difficulty of day-to-day life, as well as the massive informalization of a lot of the economy. Um, you know, so the left, I think, in in recent times has struggled to both mobilize workers who, you know, are quite aware of how close they are to falling under the poverty line, and also to mobilize amongst more wider kind of population of people who are not actually in formal employment. Uh, so I think the, the sort of economic context and impact of, of, of the policies we've been talking about has been, have been, uh, you know, the most direct hindrance to left sort of political projects in Nigeria. But beyond that, I think there's now a bit more of a recognition that questions of inequality matter to Nigerians. I think in the last probably 20 years, a lot of sort of Nigerian popular culture expressed in, you know, our, our movie industry and our music has been focused a lot on personal success and personal enrichment, right, in a context yeah. where really there was very little kind of social provision. But nowadays, I think we're seeing a little more questioning of that consensus in some of our popular culture, you know, and the, of course, there's a long history in Nigeria of radical cultural responses to the status quo. You know, you can think of figures like Fela Kuti and yeah. even, you know, his son now, Shane Kuti, has just announced yesterday that, you know, he's trying to revive his father's old political party. So inequality as a, as a focus and, you know, as it's deepened, I think you, you, you're seeing a little bit more of a consciousness of, of um, just how dire things are here and, and a response to it. But it's been quite difficult given the sort of economic reality that that poses um, I think over the course of the last 20 years for the left to rally around. Nigeria is also a young country. I mean, maybe not in comparison to like the rest of sub-Saharan Africa, but it's, you know, young sure. demographically compared to especially, you know, places like the UK. And, the, you know, the recent protests that we were talking about earlier did really kind of galvanize mm-hmm. uh, many of those young people yeah. into politics. Um, and into kind of, you know, resistance. Yeah, absolutely. In, you know, places like the UK and the US, you've seen this big gap emerge between older and younger generations over political, you know, choices and and, and tactics, mm-hmm. although they're demographically obviously quite different. So what, you know, are there parallels of that kind of widespread discontent amongst the younger generation mm-hmm. as a result of basically the kind of stagnation of, of capitalism and the evaporation of many opportunities for young people? in recent decades? There certainly are. And I think this is also part of the story of how NSARS, you know, emerges. But yeah, I think we, you know, our population is about 60% under the age of 25. And particularly amongst the young people, I mean, unemployment is quite dramatic. And, you know, most people have to sort of participate in the informal economy or kind of keep up multiple hustles in order to kind of make ends meet. So, yeah, I think, you know, the, the, the decline that we've been talking about and the sort of problems with sort of issues arising in Nigerian capitalism have a particular impact on young people who, you know, haven't have also largely been excluded from, you know, the few sectors of the economy, particularly the oil sector, where, you know, there has still been some measure of progress. So, 
yeah, I mean, I think those parallels are definitely, um, you know, quite important to point out. But I think we're still yet to see a kind of organized and radical response emerge that addresses these, stru- these sort of structural issues that lead to poverty and, and, um, and destitution amongst the young. And NSARS, to some extent, you know, represented a kind of flash, you know, a kind of, let's say, early spark of that possibility. But I think we're still far from seeing that kind of concretized into a wider critique of the uh, political and economic status quo. One thing that really stood out to me and a lot of the articles that you sent over um, mm-hmm. and I was reading before this um, this interview was that a lot of the writers emphasised the existence of these kind of vibrant networks of mutual support mm. in which people literally like feed each other in yeah. Nigeria. There was a couple of references to that, that, you know, people literally like just share food. Mm-hmm. To what extent are these networks, have they been really important in helping people through this crisis? Mm. And are they being kind of depleted as a result of it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, it, and it's true that, you know, in the absence of serious social provision people have had to fall back on familial networks or kind of various religious networks but yeah those have been strained quite dramatically as well you know in the context of a wider economic contraction and also you know as much as there's something to celebrate about that showing of 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 solidarity and mutual aid i think there's we also have to acknowledge that that's not done very much to kind of critique the existing status quo. I mean, if anything, yeah. it's slightly subsidized, you know, the, the, the existing or somewhat legitimized the existing status quo because people then look to sort of family or various kinds of patronage networks for basic mm. provision. And it's also done a lot to reinforce the dominance of sort of political movements that have kind of conservative and political mm. movements that have taken power because they also deploy these kinds of networks and keep a lot of people fed in order to then demand for those people's votes come election time, uh, you know, in sort of classic old school models of sort of pork barreling or vote buying and patronage politics. So they're kind of a double-edged sword. And um, they've also been, as you were hinting at, weakened by, um, you know, the current decline. Uh, so this is part of why after the NSAS protest, after they were crushed, we saw outbreaks of sort of looting and various forms of violence, uh, you know, across the country. And also people, you know, discovering that there were COVID-19 sort of provisions and aid packages that had been hoarded in various warehouses. Right, you yeah. know, And this is an expression of politicians and local power brokers channeling what were public resources into those sort of private networks in order to benefit yeah. from you know, um, sort of those forms of provisions when rather they should have been kind of carried out by states and local authorities. So it's a kind of complex picture, you know, but there are things to celebrate there, but also some issues with it. The thing I want to talk about now, I suppose, is how the imperial structure of the global economy affects Nigeria. We've kind of hinted at this quite a lot. And obviously, it's impossible to really discuss, um, just it's impossible to discuss British political economy and American political economy without reference to empire. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very difficult to understand the um, particular like political and economic structure of, of Nigeria without reference to these wider um, structures mm-hmm. that 
keep the country in a position of of dependency mm-hmm. in the global capitalist system. What I find interesting about this is at a time when it seems as though the dependency theory approach has a lot to tell us mm-hmm. about the kind of stagnation in growth and living standards across many countries in the global south barring China that it's kind of gone out of fashion mm. I'm wondering kind of whether or not you think that this has a, a this kind of more Marxist approach mm. has anything to tell us about the political economic position of, of Nigeria today I think it certainly does I mean I think you can't really understand Nigerian history without trying to understand why, why you know how the state has basically tried to facilitate extraction uh, particularly in the oil oh, sector. And, you know, that's primarily favored international oil companies as opposed to, you know, the wider Nigerian populace. And, you know, that's a process that has empowered a lot of, sort of individual political leaders who have benefited from inflated contracts and various kinds of corrupt dealings with, you know, global, this sort of global oil, but of course has not trickled down at all or had had any kind of meaningful impact on the lives of most Nigerians. I think that perspective also has certain limits in in, in trying yeah. in, 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 in fully kind of grasping what's happening in Nigeria because we've also had, you know, quite a powerful domestic capitalist class. You know, we have famously uh, people like Aliko Dangote, you know, this massive industrialist in Nigeria, yeah. the richest African, and increasingly the oil industry in Nigeria has been indigenized. So various aspects of it have been are now under the sort of formal leadership of local oil companies or and various parts of the economy as well are, are, are controlled by sort of local capitalists. Of course, they're also plugged into various global trade networks and, mm-hmm. and all of that. But um, I think there's an extent to which, you know, there's sort of maybe vulgar dependency uh, approach to, to coin the term might not take into account the, the extent to which you know we've also had um, you know sort of domestic capitalist uh, class emerge both linked into sort of global um, networks but also you know quite independently uh, pursuing its own project of, of accumulation. Um, but I mean, to your wider point, I completely agree that questions of dependency are still quite relevant to the political economic realities we're witnessing in Nigeria today. And, um, you know, it's quite unfortunate that um, for various reasons, that style of, of trying to understand our economic, uh, political economy has somehow fallen out of fashion. Yeah, I mean, but also you're, you're quite right. There are reasons that it did, particularly since the the 80s when you've had um, you know, the liberalization of the, the global economy, this period of hyper-globalization and the emergence of a much more genuine kind of international capitalist class mm-hmm. that does have you know, roots in, in lots of different economies. That perspective has kind of been overtaken by events. Sure, but I sure. think what's quite interesting and noticeable about what you might call imperialism today um, from a Marxist perspective has been the way in which the international financial networks that have been constructed as part of those changes have ensured that even the profits that do accrue to domestic capital often don't end up facilitating Mm -hmm. capital accumulation domestically because they are offshored to tax havens or they end up in, you know, property in the city of London or whatever. Absolutely. Um, 
and yeah, I mean, that seems like something that has has been a, a real factor in in Nigerian politics, particularly when it comes to kind of oil money. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, you know, when when that sort of domestic capital is accumulated, where it's invested is often not here, you know, mm. and, and you know, the state here taxes it very little, you know, and actually raises most most of its sort of. We have a very regressive tax system here as well. Uh, uh, so no, I mean. It's a, it's a complex debate, but I think you know there's there's clearly been a lot of kind of shifts in the balance between sort of foreign and domestic capital in Nigeria has has, has shaped out. Um, but I think you're right to point out that uh, a lot of the investment, a lot of that capital is offshored in various ways and doesn't actually contribute to developing the country uh, ultimately. In terms of the shifts at the level of the international economy that are going to be needed to support Nigeria and indeed the global south more broadly mm. through this crisis. Mm. What do you think we need? Do you think we need complete restructuring of existing international institutions? Mm. Or do you think we might be able to get uh, some form of either like debt cancellation or something more expansive like resource transfers to support states that are recovering from the pandemic? Yeah. You know, it's funny, you talk about debt cancellation, but you know, here in Nigeria, that's not something that the government's actually pursuing or interested in um, because, you know, our government's trying to, like, I'm sure like a lot of governments in the global south, trying to sort of signal that it's sort of grown up and, right, uh, yeah. you know, doesn't want its sort of, you know, credit ratings downgraded. And, you know, rather it wants to emphasize that it can pull its weight. So I think part of the change has to occur here, you know, in the way in which we think about our place in the global system and, you know, mm. in the way in which we acknowledge, you know, at the political level that we're quite unequally integrated into the global economic system um, in a way that doesn't uh, lead to our development. Um, but certainly quite significant structural changes have to also occur, you know, at the, at the global level, you know, in terms of trade, also in terms of what kinds of finance are available you know, to states like Nigeria. Um, so I think it's a raft of things that have to change. And I think calls for debt cancellation are a very important um, starting point. And, um, but it's wider conversations about sort of illicit capital flows and, you know, also about democratizing these international institutions yeah. are also quite important, you know, to continue to push. So you saw, you spoke about you know, rightly kind of that a lot of these changes need to happen within Nigeria. Mm-hmm. How can the left really build on all these sources of discontent that we've been talking about over the past mm-hmm. hour and translate that into some kind of political movement that might be able to really push these changes through mm-hmm. in a way that has been tried but maybe hasn't been so successful in the rest of Nigeria's history? Yeah, I think a lot of it will start from just trying to kind of rebuild the sort of basic institutions of the left, you know, trying to rebuild the kind of left intellectual culture, trying to rebuild links to the labor movements and strengthen existing links to labor movements, you know, trying to organize at very local levels and devise creative ways of of linking to the sort of informal sector. Um, And these are the kinds of conversations, thankfully, that are beginning to happen now, I think, in uh, various Nigerian left circles. Um, But I think we're still... quite a ways, unfortunately, from seeing that translate into concrete political power, both at sort of local and, and, and national levels. But it's, it's, in, it's in that kind of process of 
trying to kind of remember <laughs> legacies of previous successful um, left movements here in Nigeria and try trying to sort of stitch together the networks that they built, you know, across labor and the kind of uh, left intellectual circles that I think maybe there's a bit of promise that, you know, we can, you know, bring these wider questions of inequality locally and globally back to, you know, the mainstream political discourse. Saeed Hussaini, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. It was great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It was a delight to uh, talk to you and to catch up briefly. Thank you.